Hi, I'm Barry Vogel, host of Radio Curious. In this edition, we take a look at murder, getting away with murder. In the small island kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific, about 1,500 miles north of New Zealand, an American Peace Corps volunteer murdered another American Peace Corps volunteer in October of 1976. With the help of a lawyer and a psychiatrist provided by the U.S. government, the murderer was found to be insane and returned to the United States, where he went free and still lives in Brooklyn, New York, working for the Social Security Administration. The book, An American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps, by Philip Weiss, is a detailed story about that murder, how and why it happened, the legend that developed around the murder, the subsequent cover-up by the Peace Corps, and an interview with the murderer. I met with Philip Weiss and asked him to tell the story of an American taboo, a murder in the Peace Corps. Philip Weiss, welcome to Radio Curious. I'm really happy to be here. What was it in your travels that got you to cross the line as a journalist to decide that American Taboo is a book that you wanted to write? I think that it preceded my travels to Tonga. By the time I was traveling to Tonga, I was committed to writing this book. I spent 17 years thinking about this book without doing a thing about it. How did you learn about it? Why so long? Uh, I was a young man when I learned about it, and I learned about the case as a legend in 1978. It was a legend in much the way that uh, there's a legend in New York that there are alligators living in the sewers. I had heard about this murder, a vicious murder in Tonga, when I was traveling through Samoa, and there were no names attached. There was just some story about the Peace Corps having a lot of trouble with local governments. But why this? What, what drew your attention to this episode as a journalist? I learned this legend in my first foreign country. When I was 22, my first travels in the world, I learned about a, a murder that involves a triangle, a love triangle, in Polynesia. Americans in Polynesia. This was, for a young man, romantic material. I have always worked at being a writer, and I could never get that story out of my head. It's one thing to have a story in your head, and another to dedicate several years of your life to uncovering it. The moment when the story changed for me is when, at long last, I met the mother of Deborah Gardner, who is the girl who dies in the book. And when I met Alice in Tacoma, I, and I, that is, the, I, I met her a day after seeing her daughter's photograph for the first time. These events became real for me as a journalist and as a writer. They had been sort of romantic, Somerset Mom, Herman Melville, whatever, South Sea's fantasy, until I saw Deborah's photograph, I had a real sense of who this person was, a 70s traveler like myself, uh, an adventurer, that was in those photographs, uh, an open person, an idealistic person. And then the next day, I met her mother at last, and 
the devastation that this had caused and the degree of lack of resolution that this had caused and the fact that she didn't even know that her daughter's killer had gone free. Well, tell us what happened. What are the guts of the story? The guts of the story are that in 1976, in a remote posting of the Peace Corps, Nuku'alofa, the capital of the Kingdom of Tonga, where there were 50-odd volunteers in this small Pacific capital who socialized with one another, one volunteer became obsessed with another romantically. The volunteer who became fixated was a 24-year-old from Brooklyn named Dennis Priven. The object of his fixation was a 23-year-old volunteer from Tacoma, Debbie Gardner. He stalked her. The Peace Corps ignored signs that he was going off the rails. And finally, on October 14, 1976, he stabbed her 22 times at her hut. Neighbors took her to a hospital. She died. And Dennis turned himself into police that night. He faced possible hanging, and the Peace Corps then threw itself behind Dennis, uh, did everything it could to get him off the island, and achieved that end so that four months later, Dennis was walking free back in Brooklyn and was getting a new passport and had a clean bill of discharge from the Peace Corps completion of service. But wasn't that a substantive change of Peace Corps policy. At that time, volunteers lived under the laws of the host country. And here we have someone who you show in your book to have committed the crime of murder. And the Peace Corps came and provided him what? Counsel from New Zealand, 1,500 miles away, and a psychiatrist from Hawaii, you know, 4,000 miles away, and there was no psychiatrist in the kingdom to counter the testimony of the American psychiatrist. To answer your question, it was a change of Peace Corps policy, inasmuch as Peace Corps policy has been that volunteers must suffer the consequences of their actions locally. That This was a change. I think that what uh, kicked in here was a strong protective impulse on the part of the American government. The Peace Corps program in Tonga was at risk, the uh, American image in Polynesia was at risk. Peace Corps image in the United States was at risk. It was a horrifying case. And you had a young disturbed man in a primitive Polynesian jail facing hanging for killing a beautiful young woman, American woman. It was good for no one, this case. That is how the American government looked at it, or the middle-level officials who were the only ones who really considered this case. That's how they looked at it, as just a tremendous potential embarrassment. Everything must be done to smooth it over. Are you saying, then, that it was not a conscientious change of the Peace Corps policy? First, Peace Corps might argue that the defense of a volunteer was policy, so that they were only following policy in providing a defense to a volunteer. That was allowed under policy. I think that what we are talking about is actually consistent with American policy or the policy of any superpower throughout the ages, and that is to cover its behind when something terrible happens overseas. You see it in the missing case 
in uh, Chile in the 70s. You see it in the Rainbow Warrior case in New Zealand where in the 80s where the French government pulls a, a killer out of New Zealand, protects a killer because it wants to protect its nuclear program in the South Seas. In this case, the American government, mid-level officials, I, I continue to assert that because I think if this had come to the level of political officials, higher officials, they would have said, what, what kind of business is this? No, 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 no. It never got to their attention. But uh, to return to the point, mid-level officials felt that we have to protect the American image and the image of the Peace Corps. Well, are you, are you implying then that the higher officials would have said that Dennis Priven would have had to have uh, suffered a punishment for killing Debbie Gardner? The real issue from a legal standpoint in this case, to my way of thinking, well, there's several issues, but the real issue here is on what terms was Dennis brought back to the United States following an insanity verdict in Tonga. And he was brought back after um, a casual letter full of lies was presented to the prime minister by our State Department. That was irregular. It was offensive, it, and it just, it was crazy. I have the naive, perhaps, but optimistic belief that if public officials had known about this case, they would have insisted on a treaty with Tonga before Dennis was brought back so that Dennis would have been incarcerated back here. The whole thing was so irregular and so seat of the pants that the Peace Corps on Dennis, Dennis was brought back to Washington. He refused to go into a hospital. He was supposed to go into a hospital. He refused to go in. Peace Corps calls the Washington City Police in D.C. to say, we have a killer walking around headquarters. Is there anything we can do about it? And the Washington police laugh at them. There's no, they have no power over him. And that is what is, uh, I mean, there were many things wrong with the handling of this case, but that was crazy. If political officials had been involved, they would have said, no, we're not bringing this guy back with, uh, after you give a, a letter full of lies to the Tongan prime minister. What happened in the trial? What happened in Tonga? During the trial, the American government, at Dennis's defense, presented evidence from a psychiatrist, by a psychiatrist from Hawaii, that Dennis was a paranoid schizophrenic. This testimony was translated into Tongan for a jury of farmers, a Tongan farmers who did not speak English as anga'ua, basically double-minded. Dennis, I believe, was highly disturbed, dissociated individual. He he, I don't think he would have satisfied insanity defense uh, in any jurisdiction in the United States. I think that he's a lot like a lot of uh, murderers, that he's uh, a very disturbed person, but that he knew uh, to a great extent what he was doing and knew that it was wrong when he was doing it. Having said that, uh, this testimony went unchallenged. There was no counter-testimony. And the jury went out for 15 minutes and said that he was insane when he did it, when he committed the act. And then you relate in your book, American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps, the comments that Dennis had to his lawyer. 
When the verdict was handed down, Dennis turned to his lawyer and said, thank you very much, with a big smile on his face. And this has troubled the lawyer to this day, 28 years later. He thinks that he, he had presented the case thinking that Dennis was crazy. And here was this person who uh, seemed very rational and uh, aware of exactly what was happening and connected with reality. And it stunned the, the attorney. This is the question that has bedeviled a lot of people who knew Dennis. He was a very rational person, the best poker player on the island, very calm person and methodical. Not calm, but intense and methodical. And they could never sort out whether he was really crazy or just uh, actually calculating. And that type of confusion is at the heart of the book with respect to his personality. I want you to tell us more about that confusion, but first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Philip Weiss about his new book called American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps, a story about one Peace Corps volunteer murdering another in the Kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific in 1976. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Philip, this confusion that you talk about. Well, I met Dennis in September of 2002, and he declined to help me with this book. That was the substance of our encounter. We spent three hours together with him trying to figure out whether he was going to help me, and he declined to help me unless I waited until 2007 to publish the book, uh, which I was not willing to do. Why did he want you to wait? Dennis stated at the start of my encounter that uh, our exchange would be off the record, uh, or, or, or everything he told me, he said, would be off the record. Uh, he did. I did say something about the terms he offered uh, the 2007 terms, because he told me I could tell my publisher, I'm not really going to fill that in publicly, except that uh, he felt a certain degree of security that he would have in 2007, he would not have before then, and wanted me to wait uh, for those selfish reasons for himself. Why did you choose to honor his request that what he told you was off the record? I guess that I felt that I had looked him in the eye. Well, you don't look Dennis in the eye. He doesn't look anybody in the eye. But I felt that I had, uh, it was a sort of a human connection. There were things about him I liked. He has a, a, a wonderful mind in a lot of ways. He's a brilliant man whose talents were blighted by this episode. And he never got to recover from it, I think. I think he spent his life just trying to escape the consequences of what he did that night. To return to your question. I said that I wasn't going to use it. It was off the record, and uh, I've honored off the record with high statesmen and low statesmen and... um, Murderers. And murderers, too. Yeah. You spent several hours with him walking up and down the avenues of New York City. What was your impression of Dennis Priven, who he was and what he was trying to do with you when you were trying to extract from him... Uh, his innermost secrets of what happened that night years before? My impression was of a brilliant, humorous, and deeply disturbed person. The key moment, I think, in the exchange was at the end when I was showing him photographs of 
uh, all the photographs I'd collected or some of the photographs I'd collected in preparing this account, I flipped through several pictures of Deb Gardner and he was expressionless as I did so. He had told someone after killing her, several weeks after killing her, he had said she deserved it. And I felt that he had preserved that feeling 28, 27 years later. He still thought she deserved it. Uh, he just looked at these pictures with impassivity. Then we came to a photograph of Paul Boucher, a good friend of his, a fellow Peace Corps volunteer who visited him in prison regularly and who actually accompanied him back to the United States at the end of the case, a dear friend. And Dennis lost it. He got up, he held up his hand, he walked away down the street, he was overcome with emotion. And I just thought, what a monster. He, he's still thinking about himself. And uh, that degree of sort of self-obsession uh, is, is pathological. It's, it's psychopathic rather than, it doesn't fall into the category of ordinary human responses. So I felt great pity and also uh, some condemnation of him. He's never gotten to uh, expiate this horrible thing that he did. And the government failed to give him the opportunity, and he has not taken the opportunity. I called on him to express remorse, to apologize, to ask forgiveness. He declined these opportunities. How had the government given him the opportunity, or how could the government have given him the opportunity? I feel that if the government had dealt with this this case in a uh, uh, upstanding manner, that Dennis would have spent a lot of time in an institution. And uh, institutional life, uh, he might have, uh, he he would leave institutional life with some sense that he had done his time. And maybe he could have gotten new life from that. Maybe he would have been forced to uh, uh, seek remorse during that process. But in any case, I think that there might have been another chapter in his life and my sense is that he's been buried in one chapter. You talk about the legend which drew you to this case, and you say towards the end of the book that you and another person were able to blow the legend to kingdom come. Barry, I, I just love you for, for reading that quote. I just I can't tell you how pleased I am that you read that quote. You know, this you just read the climax of the book. Uh, to me, that's the climax of the book. This case was a legend, as I say, and it was a legend that haunted people, that, that, that preoccupied the, the, the hundred people who knew about this were um, deeply troubled all their lives and shadowed by this legend. And that's not the way a democracy works. That's one of the assertions of my book, uh, is that we do not deal with a case like this in this fashion, in an underhanded, shadowy way that creates a legend. And so the, to me, the beauty of the story, the beauty of that line, is that after 25 years, uh, through the efforts of the writer Jan Worth, who you mentioned, and a Peace Corps official named Mike Basil, and my own efforts. Together, we blew the legend to kingdom come. We said, this cannot stay a legend. This must be set down as information in a way that my fellow citizens can judge what it represents. So how do we do that? Well, I think that that's happening now. Happily for me, that's happening now. The book is getting out there. People are getting to read it. Uh, Peace Corps is undergoing some soul-searching generally now on the issue of volunteer risk. 
the Gardner parents, Deb's parents, who were so quiet for, for a quarter century, have publicly stated that they want justice. I think that certain processes are now in are now happening that they're that that are going to lift the cloud from uh, a lot of people's lives. It may even lighten the lives of uh, Dennis Priven and and Debbie's parents. Who knows? Uh, but I think that things are unfolding, and I, I I have to say I feel proud about that and happy about it. And and I, I know this book has hurt a lot of people. I I, I make it clear this book has hurt. Uh, uh, some people, the 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 and Dennis and and even members of Deb's family, to to open this up as hurt and hurt some Peace Corps volunteers. But I, I feel that it's it's worth it. You talk about the Peace Corps evaluation of prospective volunteers' emotional stability to live overseas in the circumstances where volunteers live, which are very, very different from the way we live here in America. Of course. What changes do you believe the Peace Corps is undertaking uh, in that regard now? I don't know, Barry. I'm sorry. Uh, That's outside. uh, Well, let me ask it this way. What changes should the Peace Corps undertake? I feel that... uh, I want to emphasize that I think Peace Corps is just a noble program. Uh, it's just a great thing. It did everything that John Kennedy and that generation wanted Peace Corps to do. It has done. It has enriched our public life. It has given us a better face overseas. And we've created a lot of internationalists in a society that's really uh, self-centered and geocentric. What should Peace Corps be doing? Peace Corps uh, has to deal with more forthrightly with parents and with young people about the issue of risk overseas. Uh, A number of um, cases have come up now this year, actually, at a time when George Bush wants to expand Peace Corps' role, a good thing. Uh, But Peace Corps has to to wrestle with this issue, and it has to uh, try to um, be more honest with volunteers when they do, uh, when there are assaults, which are going to be inevitable. There are going to be assaults. It has to be uh, has to set up a more regular process to deal with these types of events. Right now, it tends to brush them under the rug. What happened in this in this horrifying case in 1976, this anomalous case, uh, is actually a pattern in as much as Peace Corps has not been open about um, risk. It has not, uh, when a volunteer suffers overseas, it, it Peace Corps says, how is this going to hurt the program, rather than what can we do for this young person who has been scarred by this terrible event? Often, when there's a, an assault, two people are scarred. And in this book, the events that unfolded focus on the scars of Dennis Priven. They don't really focus on the scars on Debbie Gardner. To a limited extent, they focus on the scars suffered by her parents, Wayne and Alice. Yes, it's true that uh, you had a, a brilliant young man from a uh, very tight-knit family in an urban area who was plunged into uh, the South Seas, uh, a, a rural kind of environment, far from home, a man who's lived in Brooklyn all his life. Uh, he could not cope. He could not cope with this overseas experience. And you know, I don't know what you do to prevent that kind of thing. Peace Corps does take people out of the United States, and 
throws them uh, to the far corners of the earth, and it should do that. And there's a limited uh, extent to which we can assess who will do well and who won't. So when we take that into the future with the current Peace Corps, and you talk about there will be assaults and there will be an individual injured. I feel that right now in Iraq, we are exposing hundreds of thousands of our young people to uh, potential deadly injury. And we're doing so mistakenly, in my belief, out of a sense that this is our national interest. Well, Peace Corps serves our national interest. And while Peace Corps uh, volunteers are not put into situations like Iraq, they are... uh, they are going to be in sometimes uh, risky situations. And what Peace Corps has to do, and I think it might actually help Peace Corps and help the image of Peace Corps, is to say, guess what? This is valorous activity. And uh, yes, we will do everything we can to minimize risk. We will have... uh, We will withdraw volunteers from risky situations, but we cannot eliminate risk entirely. And I actually think that that will make Peace Corps more of a draw and will emphasize the the, the, the great importance of having people overseas not always carrying guns and occupying other lands. Philip Weiss, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Uh, The most interesting book I've read lately is a book that's out of print and is by Paul P. Rogers. Paul Rogers was the secretary to Douglas MacArthur, uh, a nerd, uh, a young man from the Midwest uh, who wore glasses, was a very quiet, uh, uptight young man who read Catullus at his desk in... um, MacArthur's headquarters, and at the end of his life, in the 19, uh, in early 1990s, he published two volumes about MacArthur, uh, MacArthur and Sutherland, The Good Years, MacArthur and Sutherland, The Bitter Years. Sutherland was MacArthur's chief of staff. These are beautiful volumes. Uh, I just can't emphasize what a gift uh, Paul P. Rogers, a professor of banking and insurance, uh, made to Uh, readers and to learning by setting down his youthful experiences at the end of his life. Um, I disagree with the point of view a lot, but just as a record of an amazing American experience uh, in World War II, uh, it's just just been great to read. So tell us the names of his books again. The names again are MacArthur and Sutherland, The Good Years, and MacArthur and Sutherland, The Bitter Years. And it reflects, it's really about the relationship between MacArthur and his chief of staff, including an adulterous affair that the chief of staff was having in Australia and in New Guinea during the war. Philip Weiss, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. It's been a real pleasure, Barry, and uh, they were great questions. Thank you. Philip Weiss is the author of An American Taboo, A Murder in the Peace Corps. The books he recommends are MacArthur and Sutherland, The Good Years, and MacArthur and Sutherland, The Bitter Years, both books by Paul P. Rogers. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. 
We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.